This is a Rooster Teeth production. April 10th, 2010. Polish Air Force Flight 101, a Tupolev 154M with 96 people on board, is seconds away from landing at Smolensk North Airport in Smolensk, Russia. This is a special flight carrying high-ranking dignitaries to a memorial commemorating the 70th anniversary of the Katyn Massacre. The passengers on this flight include the president of Poland, Lech Kaczynski. The weather at Smolensk is very poor with thick fog severely obscuring visibility. Less than a mile from the runway, the plane is dangerously close to the ground and clips some trees. The pilots try to climb to escape the danger, but it is too late. The plane hits more trees and impacts the terrain, killing all on board. Was this an accident or was there possibly foul play involved? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. So we often describe this podcast as like a true crime podcast in the air. Uh-huh. This is an episode that definitely has a lot more true crime aspects than uh, than most. Yeah. We got like presidents and, and, and politics and accusations of... Uh, of foul play, which we're we're absolutely going to dig into and talk about in this episode. Before we uh, proceed, of course, uh, we're back. It's uh, <laughs> we've been on a little break for a couple of weeks uh, researching this new batch of episodes. So thank you everyone for continuing to listen with us and bearing with us while we get these brand new episodes ready for you. Mm-hmm. As always, I uh, always want to remind you to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. If you wish to support this podcast, we have merch, which you can find in our link tree on all of our social media. Thank you, Chris. You can find that at store.roosterteeth.com. And if you want, you can also uh, become a premium listener of this podcast on whatever podcast platform you listen to. If you just head over to blackboxdownpod.com, you can get all the information. And it's a way to directly support the production of this podcast, you know, either either through merch or through this uh, premium experience. Yeah, you get it early, no ads. And exactly. Just, and, and it just helps us out. You beat me to it, Chris. <laughs> Like I said, you can find all that information at blackboxdownpod.com. It's $2.99 a month, and you can continue listening on whatever podcast platform you currently use. And if you have questions, like there's a little FAQ there that answers, like, I think most of the common questions. It's pretty it's pretty easy, pretty seamless. Yeah, and less than a cup of coffee. No, I'm drinking coffee. Are you watching me, Chris? Maybe. <laughs> it was really ominous. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, so we, like, I, like I mentioned at the top, this is Polish Air Force Flight 101. We are a little past the 12th anniversary of this incident. It was April 10th, 2010. When the 12th anniversary passed here recently, back on April 10th, 2022, um, this incident was kind of in the news again. Uh You know, like I said, this was um, a Polish flight that was flying into Russia to commemorate um, this massacre, the 70th anniversary of this massacre. And there's always been some people who accuse Russia of having a hand in this and calling it an assassination. With recent news, you know, about, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, this has kind of come up to the front again. Like, hmm, was there something more going on here? Like, is this something that needs to be revisited? And there's people in Poland who've never given up the search for what they consider to be more answers to the questions of whether or not this was some kind of politically motivated Hmm. assassination. We'll get into it. I don't want to give my thoughts on that right now. Uh, we have a lot to cover before we get to okay. that. But yeah, we'll definitely talk about that throughout this episode. So like I said, this was a flight from Warsaw, Poland to Smolensk, Russia on April 10th, 2010. Mm-hmm. The purpose of this flight was to take high-ranking Polish officials, including the president of Poland, like I said, yeah. Lech Kaczynski, 
to commemorate ceremonies marking the 70th anniversary of the Katyn massacre that happened during uh, World War II. This flight was crewed by Captain Arcadius Protasiuk, who was 36 year old and had 3,531 flight hours. I feel uh, compelled to mention there's a lot of uh, mm-hmm. Polish names in this episode. <laughs> I know I'm going to get them wrong. I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can. The first officer was Robert Grzyna, who was 36 years old with 1,909 flight hours. The navigator was Artur Zietek, who was 32 with 1,063 flight hours. And there's a flight engineer by the name of Andres Mikhalik, who was 37 with 329 flight hours. There's four people, as you can tell, uh, flying this plane. It's an older plane, so mm-hmm. it's got a, you know, a lot of crew. And this aircraft, like I said, was a 20-year-old Tupolev. TU-154 with 5,150 hours and 4,000 cycles. And there were four flight attendants and 88 passengers on board total. So another a, a quick asterisk I should, I should mention here. Uh-huh. You know, when I introduced this, I mentioned it's Polish Air Force Flight 101. And yeah. that's because, you know, these are all military personnel who are, who are the crew for this. If they're part of a special unit in the Polish Air Force tasked with flying dignitaries around. So it's not like this was a commercial flight or, you know, some kind of charter flight with, you know, commercial aviation pilots. No, these are Air Force pilots who are, you know, very distinguished, who, you know, it is their job to uh, fly dignitaries like the president around for Poland. So they know their stuff. Yes, they do. So the crew for this flight reported for duty pretty early in the morning between 2 a.m. UTC and 325 a.m. UTC, which is between 4 a.m. and 525 a.m. Warsaw time. Mm Mm-hmm. The rest of the times that I'm going to mention are all universal time just because they're traveling across time zones. So we want to keep it consistent. So I'm just trying to give like perspective on where they're starting from. Okay. After all the passengers boarded, the flight took off 27 minutes behind schedule at 527 a.m. UTC. The flight climbed to an altitude of 33,000 feet. And at 614 UTC while flying over Belarus, the crew received information about the conditions in Smolensk. Mm Mm-hmm. The information was that the visibility was 400 meters and there was fog. And just for our American listeners, 400 meters is about the same as a quarter of a mile. And that's not very far in a plane. No, that is incredibly, <laughs> incredibly short. Like, <laughs> think about how fast uh, a plane is going and how quickly mm-hmm. it'll cover a quarter of a mile. That's, you know, seconds, if that. If you're driving in your car at 60 miles an hour, you go through a quarter of a mile in 15 seconds. Yeah. So a plane is... Yeah, it would just be a couple of seconds to get through that. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and and one other thing I should mention here, mm-hmm. this airport they're flying into, uh, North Smolensk, it's a, a Russian military airfield. Normally, they don't do commercial uh, operations here. But okay. of course, since, you know, it's the Polish Air Force, they're flying in the president for this, you know, commemoration of this uh, massacre. You know, that's why they're using this military airport. This was the airport closest to their destination, so they wouldn't have to drive very far. Okay. So that's why they're, they're flying into Smolensk North. So about 10 minutes after they get that information... The crew received another update saying that the weather conditions were the same and they were advised that the weather conditions were not good for landing. Hmm. The captain asked for an initial approach anyway and was cleared for one. At the same time, the first officer for this flight received information from a captain of another flight that landed in Smolensk about an hour earlier Uh and that the cloud base was much below 50 meters and another flight had two missed approaches. So 50 meters, you're looking at what, like 160 feet or so. So there's really low clouds, fog. Sounds like it's difficult. Yeah. At 6.26, the captain of Flight 101 talked to the diplomatic protocol director on board and told mm-hmm. him that with the existing conditions, they would not be able to land and that they'll make one attempt and that'll probably be no good. The protocol director responded saying, well, then we have a problem. And the captain said they could hold for about half an hour and then go to an alternate airport. And the protocol director leaves the cockpit to go brief the president. Uh-oh. 
Uh, if I remember right, I believe their uh, alternate airport was an airport close to Moscow. And it, it's like it was really far away from where they were trying to get to. So they were, you know, conceivably, if they have to divert, they're going to miss the ceremony. Oh, so the aircraft descended to an altitude of 500 meters and entered the landing circuit at Smolensk. At 6.30 a.m., the protocol director re-entered the cockpit for a moment and said there was no decision from the president on what to do next. And while on the downwind leg, so they're coming like parallel to the runway, you know, before uh-huh. they, they turn to land. So they're on the downwind leg. The crew configured the aircraft for landing. At this time, the controller at this airport asked the crew if they had ever landed here before, but the report doesn't say whether or not the crew answered. That sounds like no, then. <laughs> there are other things going on that uh, I'm going to get to. I'll spoil a little bit right now. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and answer your, your question there. We've talked about this before, that English is the international language of aviation, right? Typically, when you're flying commercially, for the most part, you know, air traffic controllers and pilots are communicating in English. Mm-hmm. Like I said earlier, this is a Russian military base, so that doesn't apply. So the controllers are speaking in Russian. The only person in the cockpit who spoke Russian was the captain. Oh, no. So, you know, if you think about it, like the, the controller asks, have you ever landed here before? Three out of the four people in the cockpit don't understand him. The only person who understands him is the captain. So conceivably, the, you know, if only one person can understand, they can conceivably miss the question. Yeah. And the captain didn't re, like re-ask. Right. Hmm. The controller then told the crew to turn base and advise him to be ready to make a go around when at 100 meters. At this time, the commander-in-chief of the Polish Air Force entered the cockpit, and the captain told him that the runway visibility was now at 200 meters. And that's the equivalent of about 656 feet. So they definitely, like, the visibility has deteriorated quite a bit. The crew turned for their final approach while at a distance of 14.5 kilometers, which is about 9 miles, from the runway threshold. When the aircraft was 10 kilometers, or about 6 miles from the runway threshold, the controller of landing zone informed them that they were entering the glide path. From this point on, the controller of landing zone would keep the crew informed about their position relative to the glide path and center line. And we've talked about this. A glide path is like mm-hmm. the angle and the path that the plane ideally should take to come in for a perfect landing. And the center line is just the center line on the runway. Like yeah. it, it determines whether or not they're too far left or too far right. The controller then informed them that they were eight kilometers or five miles out on track and on the glide path, and then cleared them to continue their approach. So they're just, they're going for it. Because it seems like it's working. Yeah, they're going for it. You know, the the controller is giving them their position, letting them know, you know, where they are relative mm-hmm. to the runway. And they're, they're coming in to try to land. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But in uh, <laughs> lots of times, if you're landing in, like, let's say you're flying uh, commercially nowadays and you're mm-hmm. coming in to land and it's really foggy. You know, we've talked about this before. There's uh, automated systems like the ILS yeah. that help planes figure out, even if you can't see, it helps you like line yeah. up automatically so you know that doesn't do it automatically but you've got instruments that help you show you know where you are with extreme precision so you can come in and land perfectly again that's like if you're flying commercially this is a military base things are a little different this is also in russia 12 years ago so things are a little different i'm trying to like give perspective yeah. for that it's a little different if you're flying if you the listener is flying in in fog right now don't worry so during the aircraft's final descent the TAWS, or the Terrain Avoidance Warning System, generated the Terrain Ahead Warning. Uh-oh. And we've, we've talked about this before. This is like a ground proximity warning, you know, terrain, terrain, like that kind of stuff. In response to this, the captain set his altimeter to standard pressure, which I'm, I'll, I'll cover what that means in a minute. This caused the, the TAWS to receive wrong data and assume that the aircraft was higher than it actually was. The controller of landing zone then called out, 
four on track glide path, then three on track glide path. So we've talked about this before about how there's different ways for planes to receive their altitude data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about it in the airspace episode recently. Yeah. And we've talked about it in other incidents as well. We've talked about radio altimeters that, you know, like shoot radio waves straight down under mm-hmm. the airplane and it measures the distance. Yeah. And there's also, in this case, uh, an altimeter that can you can adjust the pressure reading on it to whatever the local pressure is, and that'll tell you what your altitude is based on measuring the outside air pressure. So when I say that the captain set his altimeter to standard pressure, that means instead of setting it to whatever the local pressure was at the airfield, he set it to 29.92, which is a standard reading, which means it's not giving accurate information anymore. So the plane thought it was higher than it was, which made the TAWS stop giving the alarm that it was giving. And that so the alarm's going off, and his solution is just change the instrument that so the alarm won't go off, but it doesn't change the actual altitude? Correct. And I know it sounds absolutely crazy. It does. <laughs> uh, but to try to give some rationale, to try to give some uh-huh. insight into what the captain may have been thinking. This system, the TAWS, you know, mm-hmm. uh, train avoidance warning system, the way it works is it has a database built into it uh-huh. of airports. So it knows if you're getting low, but you're close to an airport, you're probably going to land. You're not crashing. So then it won't give alarms because it thinks, oh, this is normal procedure. We're getting low because we're about to land. Okay. Again, this is a military airfield. This is not in the TAS database. So the captain Mm. thinks, oh, it's just telling me terrain because I'm coming in to land at a military airfield. It doesn't know we're actually about to land. There's no need to worry about this terrain warnings. I'm just going to set it to standard pressure so it stops bothering me. Okay. So hopefully that gives a little more insight into what the captain was thinking. Yeah. In, in said, it's still not correct, but that's my, maybe what he was thinking. Yeah, but it, it, it does, it's just still stills like, oh, the warning light's going off. Here, I got a solution for that. Let me, and he just like puts tape over it. You know? Yeah, that, that's a very good analogy. <laughs> I, I guess it, it does help with some context, but still. Right, yeah. In, in, these, in these circumstances where there's fog and they can't see the ground. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. But, you know, in his mind, that alarm is going to keep going off until they land, even though, like, that's what they're trying to do. Uh, yeah. Again, I'm not trying to say he was right. I'm just trying to say, like, this is the faulty logic he's following. Mm-hmm. He's most likely following in order to get to this solution. Yeah. Solution in air quotes. The TAS then started again and continued to generate warnings until the end of the flight. So, so the warning was going off again, even though he just turned it off, and sw- or he, he swapped it to the uh, standard al- right. uh, altitude? Pressure. So even though he put in standard pressure, the plane was continuing to descend. So the plane thinks it's higher than it is, but then it can, since they're still descending, they get low enough again to where the alarms start going off again. Because mm-hmm. even with the incorrect altitude, the plane still thinks that they're low enough to generate the alarms. Yeah. Okay. So the, like I said, the alarms are going off. They continue to go off until the end of the flight. Uh, at 640 and 41 seconds, the controller of landing zone called out. Two on track, glide path. 11 seconds later, the captain commanded a go around. And two seconds after that, a warning sounded that the critical altitude setting on their radio altimeter was reached. And the radio altimeter is the other way it measures altitude that we talked about, where it's radio waves that shoot down directly under the airplane and measure the amount of time it takes to come mm-hmm. back. And this is two seconds after he said, let's do a go around? Yes. And the go around is because he couldn't see anything. Yeah, I think, you know, like he had, it, again, it's hard to infer what was going on, but, you know, he had told the people who were in the cockpit who had come up to ask about it, that they were probably going to have to go around because conditions were bad. 
And at this point, you know, like we said, warnings are going off. And well, he called for a go around and the warnings get a little worse. I think mm-hmm. at this point, you know, he's not seeing the runway. He's not seeing where he needs to be. So he's calling for a go around. At 640 and 55 seconds, the controller of landing zone called out level flight 101. And the aerodrome controller then called out height check level flight. And even though the captain initiated a go around, the inertia of the aircraft still caused it to sink. And at 641 on the dot, the flight struck a tree. Because you know how it is. Like, it takes a little while for, we've talked about this before, for the engines to spool up. So even if they, you know, give it, even if they instantly give it full power, it takes a few seconds for the engines to spool up to that Mm -hmm. and then start generating enough thrust. So even though they may call for a go around, they're still sinking a little bit. And no, they, they hit a tree. That, oh man, so they were so close. Yeah. Uh, after flying another 244 meters or 800 feet, the plane made more contact with trees and shrubs, but mm. slowly started to climb. However, the terrain was also rising. Oh, no. Three seconds later, the aircraft struck a trunk of a tree and lost about a third of the left wing. Oh. Yeah, which caused asymmetric lift. Yeah. So you know, the aircraft began to veer left. The aerodrome commander called out for them to go around, but the aircraft then struck the ground and was destroyed, uh, killing everyone on board. So it's like they're they're coming down, they hit the tops of a tree, right? And that probably made them lose altitude. Yeah. But then they're trying to climb, they're hitting more trees, they start to climb, but then that there's higher altitude and at some point the wing just like gets sliced through a tree. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I said, the terrain was rising. So even though they were climbing, the ground was also rising. So, you know, on top of, if, you know, if it's flat ground, they can gain altitude more. But if the ground's rising mm-hmm. up too, it's like then the difference between the ground altitude and their altitude isn't changing as quickly. HelloFresh delivers fresh quality produce from the farm to your door in less than a week so you can savor summer flavors right from home. HelloFresh now has 30 dinner recipes to choose from every single week. That's the most choices of any meal kit. Going away for the summer, you can update your delivery address and enjoy HelloFresh at your vacation destination with just a click. Plans are super flexible so they work with you and your changing schedule. I love HelloFresh. I feel like for me, it saves time, it saves money. Uh, I don't have to go to the grocery store. I don't have to buy any more than I need. I get exactly what I need to make something really delicious and I can make it and then enjoy it. It's also super fast. It's a it's a great way to unwind after a day at work. Just like a little project. Just do this. Follow the steps. Super easy. Even I can do it. And then when it's all done, you get to eat it. So if you'd like to try it out, go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. I'm sure you like hanging out in the evening, maybe a, a little fire, you know, life's best moments sometimes can happen around a roaring fire, making s'mores or just hanging out. You know what would really help? A smokeless fire pit from Solo Stove. It'll make your outdoor moments even more memorable because instead of having to constantly dodge campfire fumes, sit back, relax, ah, actually enjoy the fire. We all know what a pain it is to be sitting around a fire with that smoke chasing you. It seems like no matter where you sit, if you move, it's always following you. So that's why Solo Stove's so great. It's got a smokeless design. You don't have to worry about moving around constantly trying to dodge smoke. There is none. It's fine. It's easy. You just sit there. That's what you want, right? <laughs> uh, it's great. I got one on my back patio. I love sitting out there, enjoying it. It's it's really nice. It's a really it's a really nice uh, centerpiece to like sit around and focus around. So you too can upgrade your backyard with a solo stove fire pit. Create a story worthy moments without the fireside fumes. It's got stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow, burn more efficiently. So little smoke, you'll wonder, you know, hey, how is there so much fire in there? It's a perfect catalyst for getting outside, spending more time with family and friends. Solo stove fire pits are brilliantly engineered. 
Easy to use. They're built to last. Easy to light, which is a few bits of starter. Your fire is blazing in minutes. They're so confident you'll love it. They offer a lifetime warranty and 30-day free return policy. So right now, you get big discounts on all fire pits during Solo Stove Summer Sale. Use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at solostove.com for an extra $10 off. That's solostove.com, promo code BLACKBOXDOWN for $10 off their incredible summer sale discounts. Make sure you hurry. Summer sale ends June 23rd. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with former mafia underboss Sammy the Bull Gravano. My mother and father bought me a bike. They were broke. It was a Schwinn. I had to take care of it. Fucking first day out, somebody stole it. I go running down there. The bar is right across the street where the wise guys hung out. I grabbed the bike and I started fighting. These kids were older than me, bigger than me. I was fighting the two of them. I was crying. I was getting beat up a little bit, but I was fighting like a bastard. One of them guys from the cross the street walked over. Another guy from across the street yelled to him, what's going on? He said, no, and this kid Sam, you see him? He was fighting these fucking kids. You see the way he was fighting? He's like a little fucking bull. I think a piece of me died on every one of those murders. Maybe I'm getting old. I actually become emotional. To hear more about how Sammy rose in the ranks to become one of the most notorious gangsters of all time, check out episode 587 and 588 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. So the investigation was carried out by the Polish Committee for Investigation of National Aviation Accidents. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they discovered was that this flight was never actually on the glide path. What? Yeah, even though the controller was telling them that they were on the glide path, they... They never were. So wait, they were never aligned with the runway. They were never. So glide path would be like altitude, right? Okay. But they were also off center line as well. Oh. Yeah. When the landing zone controller told the crew they were eight kilometers out on track and on the glide path, they were actually 130 meters or 426 feet above the glide path and 65 meters or 213 feet left of the center line. So they were high and to the left. At four kilometers, they were 60 meters or 197 feet above and 130 meters or 426 feet left of the center line. So again, still high and to the left. At three kilometers, they were 35 meters or 115 feet above and 100 meters or 328 feet to the left. So, so far, high and to the left. However, at two kilometers, they were 20 meters or 66 feet below the glide path and 80 meters or 262 feet left of the center line. So right as they were about to get close to the runway, they got below the glide path. But you said they were on the glide path. They, they were told they were on. The- what did the glide path say? Like, hey, was it telling them to drop? Is that why they dropped so much further than <sighs> So I, I can't give a definitive. I can tell you what the investigators conclude. Uh-huh. I can't tell you definitively. And, and the investigators say that the probable reason for the landing zone controller not reacting to the aircraft being below the glide path mm-hmm. was either incorrect visual or no visual at all of the aircraft on the radar display, which was caused by either a malfunction of the radar, the presence of obstacles like trees mm-hmm. in the runway 26 approach area, which may have restricted continuous observation of aircraft's marker on radar display, and three, errors in manual tuning of the radar by the landing zone controller, which were caused by the landing zone controller was supporting approaches to the airport for the first time in unfavorable meteorological conditions. So oh. this, this controller had never really you know, assisted planes landing in these kinds of conditions. And on top of that, this controller had only had nine shifts in the last 12 months, including this one. Nine shifts, like a full day or like you not like half a day? I'm not, I'm not sure, but still, <laughs> but either you know, way. I, I don't think it makes a big difference one <laughs> yeah. way or another. He'd only been there in the, imagine showing up for a job 
nine times over the course of a year. Like you're not going to remember no what it was you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, it's, I've been here in four months. What am, yeah. Oh, the president's landing today? I got it. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. I'm on this. And it's, it's really bad weather outside? Cool. And on top of that, there was lack of practice and practical testing as the landing mm-hmm. zone controller of this airport as is necessary for guiding flights clearance. There was also an issue with the pilots and how they were trained and prepared for this flight. The flight crew was operating under the 36th Special Airlift Regiment of the Polish Armed Forces. Like I mentioned, this, this was, these were military airmen. Uh-huh. Uh, they, had, they were in a special regiment that handled this kind of stuff. There was an absence of an effective supervision and control system of aircraft in the aviation of the Polish Armed Forces, which led to the following irregularities. The flight engineering service structure was incompatible with the needs of the 36th Regiment, in particular with regards to the number of personnel in the aircraft maintenance section. In the Aviation Technology Subcommittee's opinion, given inadequate staffing of the aircraft maintenance section, it was not possible to properly monitor operational maintenance of all aircraft, carry out the commissary helicopter and airplane test flights prior to VIP missions, train the ground and flight crews, and plan and supervise other tasks prescribed in respective regulations. So just things were not up to snuff in lots of areas. They were kind of Mm. cutting corners. Like there's no one smoking gun here, but they're just kind of like, in general, this is being done more sloppy than it should be everywhere, like from almost every aspect. Absence of up-to-date, clear regulations setting out the standards for the FES personnel in the aviation of Polish armed forces, following decommissioning of two fundamental documents, no new documents were issued, the 1991 issue of the FES guidelines of the aviation of Polish armed forces document, does not take into account the changes which took place in the last 20 years, which renders most of it obsolete. This forces FES crews in the Air Force units into taking adapting measures with respect to certain provisions contained therein to make them useful in today's environment. So basically, their regulations were old and had been decommissioned without any new regulations taking their place. So mm. essentially, they were working off of 20-year-old regulations when, you know, we, like we talk about the industry is always changing. Yeah. And again, this is like a side effect of it being a military unit as opposed to commercial aviation, where a lot of that stuff is a lot more regulated and has to be, you know, mandated by oh. organization by international standards organizations. It's weird because you, at least I feel like you would think the military would have the most up to date. You would think that, and they, they, the military. If you think about what they do, they primarily focus on military activities. Ferrying mm-hmm. around VIPs is not the main thing they do. So yeah. you could see why it would fall off to the wayside. Mm-hmm. They're just being tasked with doing something that's not in their core mission, right? Yeah. It just, it's, it's a little, I, I could see why it would, uh, it would not be as important to them since it's not something they do all the time. Mm-hmm. There's one more here. Um, inadequate staffing with well-trained specialists in the 36th Regiment's FES, continuous restructuring of the armed forces and ensuing frequent position changes depleted the ranks of experienced FES personnel that shortage could not be easily mitigated by recruiting well-trained successors as the training centers for lower and middle-ranking technicians in Olesnikia and Zamosk had been disbanded. The staffing systems failed to take into account the need for a proper personal development of the engineers, including such a career path that would enable them to gain hands-on experience as they move up. So just the path and the flow for people to get into this program was very disrupted. And, you know, they lose people and there's not a good system for replacing mm. them or having new people rise up into these positions. So a bad, a bad hiring manager. <laughs> yeah. And you think about it's like, it's not commercial aviation again. Mm. It's the military. They, you know, they can't just like 
hire someone to do this job. You know, they have, you yeah. know, there's, there's promotions, there's, there's ranking and, you know, people moving into these positions. Yeah. The flight crew of the airplane in question was not sufficiently prepared for the task at hand, given the complexity of the situation the crew encountered during their last flight. The aircraft commander, co-pilot, and navigator had been trained hastily, haphazardly, and in violation of the respective training regulations. Despite obtaining formal certifications confirmed in the orders by the unit commanding officer, the crew did not meet the criteria for fully trained pilots who are competent in performing the duties required on their jobs. Oh my God. Yeah, it's pretty bad. That's like... In all the, you know, we read a lot of these and go over a lot of these in all of our episodes. This is really bad. I mean, this is like directly pointing a finger. Like, here is the problem. And it's that they just aren't competent. They don't have the enough training. Right. Right. I mean, it's not that they've messed up inherently, right? Well, I mean, they did, but it's because of a lack of training. Yeah. Right. They messed up in this incident, but it's not like they have a bad history. They just don't have enough history yeah 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 not not enough proper training for these kinds of conditions the crew had little experience in conducting flights in difficult weather conditions using non-precision landing systems most of the flights the crew conducted during their training process involved excellent weather conditions and the landings were executed with the use of ils which in the committee's opinion affected the experience level of the crew so like we said again kind of circling back this was a Russian military airfield, so they didn't have that ILS system. Mm-hmm. So they can't rely on their instruments to help them execute this landing. They, yeah, they just didn't have the, the hands-on experience to do this. The 36th Regiment was missing adequate training facilities, instructors, and time necessary to assure a proper level of training of the pilots of the Yak-40 and Tu-154M airplanes. The way the process of maintaining operational readiness of the airplane and the cruise was organized, indicates a series of errors which led to a dramatic deterioration of the training and aircraft maintenance levels. The external circumstances, i.e. the relations with the VIP flight commissioning institutions, had a further negative impact on the process. And there's um, one more little bit I'm going to read mm-hmm. here before we really, like, really dig into the causes. High churning rate of pilots resulting from resignations. No mechanisms were developed with a view to extending professional careers of military pilots in general, and in the 36th Regiment in particular. Increasingly, younger pilots with less and less experience would qualify as instructors over a shrinking period of time, whereupon they would start training their successors. It's kind of what we talked about. Like, the, the pool is diminishing and standards start slipping as a result of it. Yeah, they're like, uh, well, you're the best there is, yeah. so yeah. You're, you're, you're hired. You're the most senior. It's like, but I only have 30 hours. Yeah, get in there. <laughs> go, go teach. I mean, it wasn't that bad, but, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like that kind of thing. It's like any job where there's a lot of turnover or a lot of uh-huh, churn, uh-huh. you know then you, the people who are left, who are the most experienced, might not have enough experience to be training the new people. Yeah, and then that it becomes bad habits are taught and then retaught, and then, yeah. You just lose institutional knowledge, mm-hmm. which is very important. The pressure by the VIP institutions on their flight requests being executed and the awareness of the importance of the regiment's tasks amongst the commanding staff and flight crews resulted in taking up the requests which the regiment was incapable of handling while at the same time maintaining the required flight safety level with available resources. That resulted in exceeding the maximum permissible flight hours and flight times by the crews. In the past years, the commanding staff of the regiment had been increasingly confronted with the need to reconcile the operational missions with the flight crew training, which led to many deficiencies in the aviation training process. So, you know, how I mentioned that the 
you know, the, the protocol director came in and was talking to the captain. The captain's like, I don't know if we can land. And the protocol director's like, well, we have a problem. Then he leaves to talk to the president. Uh-huh. Then he comes back in. He's like, the president hasn't made a decision. Why is the president deciding if they're going to land or not? <laughs> right? The president's not flying the plane. Yeah. Like, ultimately, the safety and these decisions should be left to the pilot in command. And, you know, they're deferring to someone who doesn't know how to fly a plane. Or knows anything about the weather. and Yeah. Right. And... There had been an incident several years before this where the captain of this plane, of this Mm -hmm. flight, which crashed, had been the first officer on another flight where they were flying the president. And on that other flight, the president had wanted to divert the flight to land uh, in a war zone at a dangerous airport. Yeah. And the the pilot of that other flight years before had said, no, we're not landing there. That's too dangerous. They landed, you know, somewhere else at their normal landing spot. And that captain, he was never fired or anything. He just never got scheduled to fly again. Oh, my God. So this first officer saw that early in his career. And he's probably thinking, if I don't do what the president wants, they're going to fire me. I need to do this, even though it may be dangerous. Oh, my God. So you can see I'm trying to add a little more context yeah. about what's going on here and what's going through the pilot's head. This is mm, this is like... Uh, uh Chernobyl, that HBO series, you know, where they're like, you'll never, if you don't do this test, you'll never, you know, work again. Yeah. But not that, not to that extreme, but. Yeah. But I mean, I guess that's like, like any disaster or like anything, anytime something goes wrong, you you know, pushing people to do things that they feel are unsafe can result in something awful. Yeah. So we did uh, talk about the causes right now. The immediate cause of the accident was the descent below the minimum descent altitude at an excessive rate of descent in weather conditions, which prevented visual contact with the ground, as well as the delayed execution of the go-around procedure. Those circumstances led to an impact on a terrain obstacle resulting in separation of a part of the left wing with aileron and consequently to the loss of aircraft control and eventual ground impact. Another thing that I feel compelled to mention at this point is we've talked about this a little bit and, you know, about this ground impact and how the ground was rising leading up to the airport. Right before the runway, right before where the airport is, there's like a ravine, and that's what they were flying over. Uh And that's why, you know, it kind of slopes up going to the airport. Uh, And for a while, when they were, you know, coming in, the altitude they were at was actually below the altitude of the runway. I think the lowest they got, they dipped to like 40 or 50 feet below the runway because they're flying over this ravine. And, you know, like we talked about, the captain had set his altimeter to standard pressure so it wasn't giving them an accurate reading the mm-hmm. navigator was reading out altitude readings but the altitude readings he were using was using the radio altimeter remember Which how the radio tr- altimeter yeah, works radio is directly below the plane directly below waves so it's bouncing off of a ravine that's below oh my god so that's why they got so low no one's actually paying attention to the real altitude the navigator should have been reading off of the altimeter that's corrected for field pressure that way they get an actual elevation and they can compare that and they know where they're actually at as opposed to how far they are off the ground so the other one operates like how far are you above sea level and they compare it to how far the runway is off of sea level and that way they can know more or less where they are the radio altimeter just tells them how far they are away from the ground so it's like you can see why you want both of these tools Mm -hmm, (laughs) you need to mm -hmm. you need to have context for the information you're receiving in order to put it into perspective for your unique circumstances where you are yeah Okay, anyway, so the circumstances that contributed to this accident was the failure to monitor altitude by means of a pressure altimeter during a non-precision approach. That's exactly what I just said right there. (laughs) Failure by the crew to respond to the pull-up warnings generated by the TAWs. 
attempt to execute the go-around maneuver under the control of the autopilot system. The autopilot was still on when they started their uh, go-around. The proper procedure would have been to disable the autopilot, immediately give it full power and go. That just kind of delayed the reaction of the plane, which is another reason like they weren't able to climb as quickly. Approach control confirming to the crew the correct position of the airplane in relation to the runaway threshold, glide slope, and course, which might have affirmed the crew's belief that the approach was proceeding correctly, although the airplane was actually outside the permissible deviation margin. Failure by landing zone controller to inform the crew about descending below the glide slope and delayed issuance of the level out command. Incorrect training of the TU-154M flight crews in the 36th Regiment. Incorrect coordination of the crew's work, which placed an excessive burden on the aircraft commander in the final phase of flight. Uh, And again, this kind of goes back, we didn't really talk about it too much, but this has to do with the fact that the captain was the only one who spoke Russian. So he's having to do the radio work and fly the plane. Normally, Mm -hmm. you know, the navigator or the engineer would be doing the radio work. I think it's the navigator in this plane. I don't remember off the top of my head. I think it's the navigator should be doing the radio work. But because the captain is the only one who speaks Russian, he's having to take on more, which means, you know, oh, he's overloaded in these final phases. Insufficient flight preparation of the crew. The crew's insufficient knowledge of the airplane systems and their limitations. Inadequate cross-monitoring among the crew members and failure to respond to the mistakes committed. Crew composition inadequate for the task. Ineffective immediate supervision of the 36th Regiment's flight training process by the Air Force Command. This is all really bad, by the way. I'm kind of like (laughs) glossing over these. Every one of these is awful. Failure by the 36th Regiment to develop procedures governing the crew's actions in the event of failure to meet the established approach criteria. Using radio altimeter for establishing alarm altitude values for various types of approach. Distribution of duties in multi-crew flight. And the last one, sporadic performance of flight duties by landing zone controller over the last 12 months, in particular under difficult weather conditions and lack of practical experience as LZC at Smolensk North Airfield. So this is bad. What about the conspiracies? So, (laughs) yeah, we we haven't really dug into that yet. We're going to get into that in a bit, but... Now that we're through the causes as we see uh-huh. them so far, the, I can't really see this being a conspiracy theory. I can't really see this being an assassination attempt on the Polish president just because so much of the blame is on the Polish Air Force. Mm-hmm. That being said, the Russian controller obviously messed up big time. Yeah. But if you were going to try to assassinate someone, Like relying on that one dude messing up wouldn't have been enough in my opinion. Because if the controller, you know, gave them bad data like he did, and if the pilots were competent and more experienced, they would disregard that data. You know, they'd know to be looking at their instruments and they'd know what their altitude actually Mm -hmm. was. Um, I think it also relied on bad weather. Yeah. This seems like a very roundabout way to try to perform a political assassination. Granted, of course, you know, the way airline incidents work it's like it's very swiss cheese you can try to make if you were trying to perform an assassination you could try to make conditions not ideal obviously they can't control the weather but they could set up you know this um controller who wasn't very good like why was this the controller who was working at Mm -hmm. the time right like that those might be the questions you would be asking and also i guess just playing (laughs) devil's advocate a good political assassination should have plausible deniability. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Not that I think that it's the case. You're right. And and that's the reason, I mean, there are still, I don't want to get too far yet. We'll, we're going to talk a little more about this in just a bit. But yeah, I, I, you, you are right. We should. I'm glad we circled back on that a little bit. So of course, there's recommendations as a result of this incident. Verify regulations pertaining to the manner and scope of supervision by Air Force Command of training activities in the 36th Regiment. 
verify validity of certifications of the 36th Regiment flight crews, draw up and implement such theoretical and practical training curriculum for the TU-154M crews, which takes into account the current aircraft systems and involves training on simulators, draw up the annex to the Polish Air Force Flight Manual to set out the guidelines for conducting multi-crew flights, including multi-crew specificity, also in the regulations and guidelines referred to by the Polish Air Force Flight Manual, introduce provisions into the Polish Air Force Flight Manual and the VIP aircraft flight instruction, which mandate developing weather forecasts and notices for the VIP flights by the Hydro Meteorological Service of the Polish Armed Forces. So they're just trying to establish good operating procedures here. That's all this, all of this stuff is. You know, mm-hmm. it's essentially they're kind of like you know trying to implement CRM, try to have you know up to date flight manuals. You know, everyone should be looking at the weather ahead of time, develop you know forecasts. These are all things that you kind of take for granted that they weren't doing. And it's because it's military, right? Mm. Adjust the FES structure of the 36th Regiment in keeping with the tasking of the regiment. Verify the FES personnel qualifications for airborne duty and draw up a new document setting out the standards for the FES in the aviation of Polish Armed Forces in line with the changes to the Armed Forces structure and amendments to the relevant documents. So, of course, uh, the aftermath, everything that happened as a result of this. So after the crash, ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, they tasked Russia with the investigation since, you know, this incident occurred on Russian soil. Hmm. Makes sense, right? Well, I could also see that Polish wanting to investigate it because it's in Russia's best interest for it not to be Russia's fault. Right. Well, uh, you know, to, to kind of put your mind at ease, you know, Poland also set up its own committee to investigate the crash and prosecutors in both countries, you know, began criminal investigations. Russia offered full cooperation to Polish prosecutors during the investigation. So they cooperated with the Polish okay. authorities and gave them information. So yeah, I can, I can see why you would think that though. That being said, you know, there was a special commission that Russia formed for the investigation of this accident. Uh, the president of Russia at the time, Dmitry Medvedev, formed it. And the commission was supervised by the prime minister of Russia, who was Vladimir Putin at the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just, you know, putting that out there. Again, just a little context for what's happening behind the scenes politically here. According to the Interstate Aviation Committee, Polish investigators in Russia had been given access to all the procedures of Russian investigators However, Edmund Klitsch, the head of the Polish Investigative Committee, said that Poland does not have a lot of things that we would like to have. And as an example, gives a lack of documentation of Smolensk Airport and regulations about air control. You know, they want that, of course. But again, that's a weird thing because it is a military base. You know, how much does Russia really want to hand over about their military airfield? Uh Um, Yeah, that's a tough one. The Russian team completed their investigation on October 20th, 2010, and sent a copy of the report to the Polish authorities who had 60 days to comment, after which the report was published on January 12, 2011. On the same day the final report was published by the Russians, Poland published its comments on the draft of the final report. Poland stated that their comments were not taken into consideration. Russia did not include them in the report, but published this document on its website, among other appendixes. The Russian report found that the immediate cause of the accident was the failure of the crew to make a timely decision to proceed to an alternate airport, despite being warned multiple times of poor weather conditions at Smolensk. Another immediate cause was the descent below minimums without visual contact with the ground, as well as ignoring numerous TAS warnings. This led to control flight into terrain. Additionally, the Russian report found an immediate cause of the accident was the presence in the cockpit of the commander-in-chief of the Polish Air Force, which placed extreme stress and psychological pressure on the captain, 
to continue descent in conditions with unjustified risk with the dominating aim of landing at any means. So again, Mm -hmm. like we talked about, there were people coming in and out of the cockpit talking to them while they're trying to land in these conditions. Why? Why? (laughs) It's just unnecessary. Um, Polish officials also disagreed that the pilots were under pressure forcing them to land in Smolensk. And also the Russian report did not blame ATC for the incorrect callouts. I think, you know, it seems to me the pilots were under extreme pressure to make this landing. Yeah. However, so I I think I I disagree with the Polish officials on that front. However, I do agree with them that it's kind of shady for Russia to not blame their air traffic control for incorrect callouts. That, that seems wrong to me. Mm -hmm. You know, if if air traffic control is giving them bad callouts, there needs to be blame put there. Yeah. I don't, there's, cause there's no reason why it was bad. Uh, Well, the equipment at this airfield was not that great. And that's really why he was getting, so and like we talked about this earlier, the reason they were getting bad call-outs is either the equipment was broken and they don't want to admit it, or the controller didn't know what he was looking yeah, at or couldn't like, look at it. Either way, it's like, that's blame. Either you don't have up-to-date equipment, you have faulty equipment, you don't report it, or you're under... Yeah, that's yeah. there's still blame there. Correct. Um, so I, I can see why Poland would be upset with that particular part. And like we said, like we've been saying this whole time, you know, there was this conspiracy theory that this crash was an elaborate coup to assassinate the Polish president that was orchestrated by the Russians. Soon after the crash, Artur Gorski, who was a Polish MP from the Law and Justice Party, claimed that the Smolensk air traffic controllers were ordered to prevent the plane from landing so that the president could not attend the Kachin ceremony, resulting in the crash. What? Yeah, Gorski later apologized for this remarks. So, uh... Hmm. Maybe I should give a little more context here. So I, I, I actually learned some stuff in researching this this uh-huh. episode. This incident, this Katyan massacre that we keep talking about, uh, I'll, I'll take it on me. I, maybe I'm ignorant. I'd never heard of this massacre before looking into this incident. I wanted to learn more about it, so I started reading about it. Like we said, this is the 70th anniversary of it. Apparently, this massacre, like, you know, obviously it would have happened in 1940. This was a massacre that occurred at the outset of World War II. And I think the the way... The start of World War II is taught, at least it was the way it was taught to me when I was in school, was that Nazi Germany invaded Poland, right? I'm sure you probably got taught the same thing when you were in school, Mm -hmm. Chris. Yeah. Apparently, I didn't know this until I was researching this. A few days after Germany invaded Poland from the West, the Soviet Union invaded Poland from the East, Mm -hmm. making a land grab as well. And they rounded up a bunch of people in the Polish military and a bunch of people in the intelligence agencies and killed them all like right at the start of World War II, to try to deplete the Polish yeah. military and to, to, to get rid of that institutional knowledge. Um, so that was, it was the anniversary of that massacre that they were attending. So that's oh, why I think mm, yeah. there was this underlying, uh, underlying sense of conspiracy theories like, oh, well, the Soviets and the Russians, you know, are trying to not give acknowledgement of this massacre, of this thing that they did back in 1940 where they killed 22,000 Polish military officers. Yeah. So it's like, it's another like political underpinning to this story. I encourage, if you're listening to this podcast, I encourage you to, to read up on it. It's K-A-T-Y-N uh, massacre. I learned a lot in uh, in reading about this stuff that I felt like I was never taught uh, in school. Super I, interesting. I do feel, yeah, I do feel like they don't emphasize Russia's, not allegiance, but but going along so much with, with Germany during the first part of world war ii like they were like yeah uh, and, and i think it's uh, you know i, I this, this isn't a history a world yeah, war II yes. history <laughs> podcast i don't want to say things that are wrong but it's like at the end of the war you know germany 
and the Soviet Union lost a lot of people on that mm-hmm. Eastern Front, like millions of oh, people. Oh, more? Like, yeah, it was it was a crazy amount of people who who died there. And I think that is what we remember from World War II. It's like just that grind between Germany and the Soviet Union on that Eastern Front. So anyway, I'm just trying to, again, give a little more detail, a little more context behind why the Polish president was going there and why maybe Polish politicians might say that Russia didn't want them there. On October 30th, 2012, a Polish newspaper reported that traces of explosives had been detected by investigators in the wreckage of the Tupolev on the wings and in the cabin. The claims were denied by Polish prosecutors who claimed that a number of common substances could have produced the observed readings and were later withdrawn by the owner of the newspaper. You've talked about this. We had an episode where we talked about like how going to the beach and sand could conceivably set off like explosive residue traces with these machines. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, if you think about it, this was a military plane with military personnel. They could have explosive residue on them, and that could be what was found on the plane. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about that a little more here in just a second. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So uh, going back to this newspaper that made this claim, the editor-in-chief and three other staff, including the author of the article, were fired from their jobs. Uh, in November 2015, a court in Poland ruled in favor of the sack journalist, stating that the information published in the article correctly reflected the state of knowledge at the time of publication. So a little bit of controversy there. Mm-hmm. In 2017, it was announced that the British Ministry of Defense was engaged by the Polish government to examine the wreckage of the aircraft for traces of explosives. Uh, the work would be done by scientists based at the Forensic Explosives Laboratory at Fort Halstead, Kent. British air accident investigator Frank Taylor claimed that there were explosions on board the aircraft, including in its wings, immediately before it reached the tree. Hmm. According to Polish experts, trace amounts of high explosives could be present in the airplane due to frequent presence of military personnel on board or as a result of contamination on the ground, like I said. The fact that there were traces found on some parts of the airplane, but not on bodies, their trace amounts and chemical character all have been described as inconsistent with the hypothesis of an in-flight bomb explosion. Again, this was a military airfield. They, you know, what they, the way they explain it is, yeah, it makes, in other words, it's a military airfield with military personnel on this plane. It makes sense that there could conceivably be traces of explosive residue on the plane, but they didn't find any on the bodies. So if there were a bomb, logically, you would think that there would be explosive residue on the bodies as well. Yeah, I mean, unless the bomb was only in the plane to, or in the, engine, you know, in the wing or something to make the plane crash, right? I don't, yeah, but how do you, I, I, it just doesn't make logical sense. I don't know how you would, I mean, I guess it's possible, right? But it just, then now it's like really starting to try to draw at straws or like pull at straws. It doesn't yeah. seem very plausible. And again, like I mentioned here recently on April 11th, 2022, which was 12 years after the crash, the Associated Press published an article that says, a Polish government special commission has reinforced its earlier allegations that the 2010 plane crash that killed President Lech Kaczynski and 95 others in Russia was the result of Moscow's assassination plan. The new commission alleges that an intentional detonation of planted explosives caused the crash. This is a quote. Their deaths were the result of an act of unlawful interference by the Russian side, the commission's head, Antony Masizerwicz, told a news conference. He claims that there's indisputable proof There was an explosion in the left wing followed by an explosion in the plane's center. He denied that any mistakes were made by the Polish pilots or crew members despite bad weather at the time of the crash. Again, like I I have trouble listening to someone who says that there were no mistakes made by the Polish crew because obviously there were. Yeah, it's just it's it's tough. Like, yeah, I know like a lot of people like you want to kind of like dig into it and believe that. You know, there's a conspiracy here or something deeper going on, but it just doesn't 
line up. You know, I can't reconcile that. Like there are photos clearly showing where the plane hit the tree and the tree impacted the wing. And you so know, there's how- photos. There's photos of impact with the tree. Right. Like not not of at the moment of impact, but uh-huh. the aftermath showing. Oh, okay. Like this is the tree they hit. This is you know the wing that hit the tree. It's it's just tough. You know if if they hadn't hit a tree, you know was what was the plan? They were going to explode a bomb once they landed in Russia. You know, yeah. you, if you take that away, like, like it stops really making sense. Like then it starts. It, I guess it start it starts becoming more of a stretch. Yeah, it's more like well, what if this and then this and then this? it's a, so many what ifs and it could have been this way that they don't it's not just they don't all add up it's just too many conjectures and too many possibilities yeah as opposed to like it's seemingly cut and dry there was undue pressure on inexperienced crew 75 percent of the crew you know of the crew who couldn't speak the language of the controller the controller who hadn't worked very much bad weather conditions a non-ILS approach into meteorological conditions they should have just diverted they should have just landed somewhere else it wasn't worth it but yeah, it's it, it it's and I this was one I think that this was an incident that we had on our list to potentially cover, but with you know the invasion of Ukraine and the twelfth anniversary happening recently, and you know these people still talking about the possibility of you know assassination attempt, uh, I thought maybe it was a little more timely to cover it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why you know that's why we're doing an episode about it now as opposed to you know maybe talking about it later. But yeah, I think it's it's super interesting. That's 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 pretty much all the information we have about it. But yeah, absolutely avoidable incident uh, that still has you know like this cloud of mystery about it. Yeah, I mean it's a it's an interesting one. I, I do agree with you. There just sounds like there's too many random coincidences for it to be a legitimate assassination. Yeah, but like you said, you know that's you know how you would want to make a, like a political assassination, make it appear to be like an accident or something uh, unusual, plausible deniability. That's what you said, but, right? It, on a political, I mean, beyond the, the um, wanting to, you know, the memorial, but like, did Russia and Poland have an issue at that time where there would be motivation to kill the president? I believe that the, you know, Russia had always kind of denied this Katyn massacre and had kind of tried to sweep it under the rug. So I think there was some bad, and obviously they killed 22,000 mm-hmm. Polish uh, uh, military personnel. So there's obviously like this incident is the source of a lot of bad feelings to begin with. Beyond that, who knows? You know, uh, we we I can't speak to Russia's motivations and you know what they want to see done in Eastern Europe. But you know, with again, you know, with the invasion of Ukraine and you know several years ago the 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 war that they uh, had in uh, the Georgian province, you can see like there are definite political machinations in that part of the world that are yeah. beyond the scope I'm at all qualified <laughs> to talk about. Yeah, I, 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 have, I, can't, I cannot begin to speak to any of that. It's just like more things to keep in mind about uh, motivations in that part of the world. But that's it. That's Polish Airlines Flight 101. Really, again, like I said before, totally avoidable, absolute, just absolutely should not have happened. But yeah, uh, if you want to go ahead and give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod, I'll post uh, some images of, you know, they were really close. By the way, they were, I don't know if I emphasize it enough, how close they were to the runway. I believe that uh, they crashed like a kilometer away from the runway. It was like, point, which is like 0.6 miles. You know, they were so close. Uh, they hit these trees. The trees, by the way, probably should have been trimmed. These trees were a little taller than they should have been. Another, like another <laughs> level of complexity. We didn't even get into that. The trees probably should have been trimmed down a bit more than they were. But even so, because of the ravine and the train was rising, they probably still would have uh, impacted the ground regardless. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, check out uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. 
uh, we've got like some pictures there which can help add context to this mm-hmm. incident. And thank you to everyone who's shared the podcast with a friend, yeah, or, or a family member, or even a pet. We, you know, we'll take it. <laughs> yeah, we've been doing this podcast for a little over two years now, and it's been a lot of fun. It's been great watching people discover the podcast and interact with us on social media. So yeah, thank you so much. Uh, please, if you that's like the lifeblood of a podcast. If you could recommend mm-hmm. it to someone or share it on social media, we would really, really appreciate it. Leave a review anywhere. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. 